Hey everybody, welcome to episode 61 of Literary Disco, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Today's episode in two parts. We'll begin with a bookshelf revisit, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I each take a book down from our shelves to discuss, and then we will head down the river with Huck and Jim as we read Mark Twain's classic, great American novel, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Woo, it's my I'm show, act- you guys. <laughs> I know, this is what you've been waiting for. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong, and that was essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel, and joining us also is novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hi. Hi, everybody. Yeah, so this is your episode in terms of the uh, the Twain affiliation. In Let case me tell you. Anyone, yeah, why don't you tell everybody why, in case they are listening for the first time. Well, um, I work at the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford, Connecticut. I am the director of our writing programs, and I talk about Huckleberry Finn a lot. Almost on a daily basis. <laughs> did you even reread um, it for this episode, or did you just know it well enough to sort of... I reread parts of it. I yeah. reread the beginning, which... I would love to talk about later, and then my favorite parts, Great. because it, that's what it's like for me now. Um, but, yeah, we'll, we'll talk all about me later. Great. Enough can of I, me. Can I ask you a question about Hartford, briefly? Yes, I can. So, the other day, I was watching House Hunters. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this program. This isn't going to be related to Huck Finn or the Mark Twain House at all, is it? No. Um, well, it's related to houses in Hartford. Okay. So, I'm watching House Hunters. And it's taking place in Hartford. Mm-hmm. And there are these two people looking for a house. And all the houses they're looking at were um, beautiful. But one of them was old, like from the 1700s. Mm-hmm. And these fucking douchebags <laughs> that were on the show. <laughs> and they were. They were douchebags. They were making me crazy. Do, do you guys watch House Hunters? Um, No, we don't. I, I've never seen an episode. I don't even know what this is. You don't know what House Hunters is? Oh. No. So it's a show. It's a reality on, TV show where people look for houses. Right. It's on HGTV, which I only watch when I turn it on specifically to watch it all the time. Have you just <laughs> spent like six months looking for a house? Why would I ever want to spend my free time watching other people do it? That just well, yeah. see, I started watching this show like the first time we started looking for a house. Okay, so, so, like so what's your ago. question? So my is question that is miserable? this. Miserable? Like, house hunting sucks. I can't imagine. All right, go on. Sorry. It is a little miserable to watch this show. But the thing is, I get to feel morally, ethically, and financially superior to every single person on the show because I'm like, you fucking idiots. You can't buy that house. You're going you're gonna to lose your ass on it. Or you're paying too much money. Or no, you can't have your 16-year-old and your 5-year-old share a room. Are you on crack? Wait, so you're saying a reality TV <clears throat> show is all about schadenfreude? That's crazy. Yeah. Well, in this case, you're hoping that they get a nice house. At any rate. So these people, they're shopping for these houses in Hartford. All of them beautiful and well-priced, I might add. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But here's the thing. They were super freaked out about old houses, not because the houses were old, but because they were frightened by the fact that they were old because of... They might be this haunted? Might, yeah, th- this might get Ryder started. They might be haunted. God. Like, is that... Because we live... Ryder and I live where okay. there's no history, so yeah. none of the houses are old. Is this a thing where people are like, I can't buy that old house because... Hold on, idiots in California say that shit all the time. Like, I've heard people say stuff about their house being haunted in California. You have talked about your house being haunted or your sister's house on this show. No, no, I'm not talking about (laughs) it as it relates to the actual presence of the spirit Uh world. I'm talking about it because the house is old. People are like, no, fuck that. I'm not moving into an old house. It Um, could have bad shit in it. I know Ryder's getting upset, but this is a legitimate (laughs) question. 
And the answer is yes. Like, New England specifically has a huge obsession with ghosts and history and hauntings because there's so much, um, you know, there's a good 400 years of white European history, lots of ghosts, lots of, like, so I bet you guys didn't know that the first witches hung in the United States were in Hartford. Um, not in Salem. So we got a whole witch thing going on. Uh, yeah, lots of people here just have a general interest and concern about ghosts. If you get people in New England uh, going on ghost stories, they can go for a long time. A long time. Mm-hmm. Everyone's into it. And and people who say they... Um, I know a couple of people who have left houses because they are really apartments. Um, because they thought they were haunted, and you know everybody's got a story. It's part of life here. It's part of this life. This is great. So I should like invest in real estate in Hartford then. No, you shouldn't. And just use the <laughs> ghost factor to scare the crap out of people out of houses and underbid because they just want to leave. And then I could flip it, turn them around, redo right. it. You know, burn some sage, bring in some priests, <laughs> like hook up with some priests. No, the, who's the just thing as shady as me is and is like to have actually... him bless the place. So then I could be like guaranteed blessed and purified of all ghosts. You dumb people. What you do is you buy money. you you invest in new properties just adjacent to old houses. So you develop a bunch of McMansions directly next to some house from the 1600s or whatever, and then. That's how you prey on on these unsuspecting people when you're like, nothing's like ever happened right Ouija here. Boards for them, yeah. Be like, just in case, yeah. <laughs> oh, I was just staying in a house. I just Airbnb a place this last weekend, and I stayed in a house that had a glow in the dark Ouija board. Oh fuck yes! <laughs> Made me think of you, Todd. I, well, I would have come over. I would have driven to wherever you were. I would have. I would have loved that. Well, I just want to say, Ryder, your plan is flawed because for every person who is truly afraid of ghosts and rejects them. There's five people who are really into it. We have so many amateur ghost hunters, you would lose your mind. So people in Hartford itself. Oh, all around, yeah, in Connecticut. There's really? tons, huh. tons, tons, tons. So it's it's really a whole. Honestly, like all joking aside, it's really a whole little New England subculture is people who are into ghosts. So you know, if if a place were supposed to be haunted. You know, I think it might actually be more in demand. There's a restaurant uh, in Connecticut that's had, like, ten different owners, and it's always popular because the whole thing is based on this girl who supposedly died here. So, um, that's now, what see, I like. love. I love the, the people who, like, collect the ghost stories and, like, want to tell the stories. And, you know, like, all, like I've said before on the show, I love the story factor, but... The idea of people like proclaiming themselves a professional ghost hunter is just genius. I love it, like because it's the, <laughs> it's the easiest thing to proclaim yourself an expert in because you're just there's nobody's ever going to test you. Like wh- how is there ever you could just be an expert on ectoplasm or whatever, and like no one's gonna, and, and then you could make up a degree, you could become an you know you can post a blog, and like there's no way to question or test any of this. So you're just spending your life like being a a. a well, it's very similar to uh, the con artists that we will encounter in Huck Finn. Yeah, that's a good point. Yes, that this is, is it, a podcast is a... about books. So, has anyone yes, read a right. book ever <laughs> well, that we yes. might want to discuss? <laughs> well, this I, I was just thinking about this in relation to old houses, which is plays a role in Huck Finn uh, in a way. Um, and then I had seen this episode on house hunters with these people, and I was annoyed by them. And it was in your city, and I was like, what are the odds that Julia knows these fuckers? So if I figure out who they are again, I will find out if you know them, and then you can tell them how displeased I am with them. Okay, I would I appreciate that. Will do. Well, 
Well, I, I have a bookshelf revisit that I was reminded of after reading Huck Finn. Um, and it's it's an unusual one. Um, so I was looking up all the places that had banned Huck Finn over the years. And it's, as I'm sure you can tell us, Julia, one of the most widely banned books in the history of the United States. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about my own participation in a banned book. Ooh. It is the 1989... Palm Springs High School yearbook, which I was one of the editors of, and which was banned by uh, the school district. What? What did yes. you do? <laughs> why, why do you assume it was me? I absolutely. You just randomly called the people in Hartford fuckers for no reason. So I guarantee that when you were 18, it wasn't like you were more in control of your mouth. No, I wasn't. So. I was one of I was one of several editors of this book, and so I have one of um, I have one of I think ten of the actual banned copies. So this was a long time ago. Obviously, this was 1989. So this was 25 years ago. Good God! So I was one of the editors of this yearbook, and um, there was like ten of us or something, and we just wrote stupid, racist, sexist, um, misogynistic shit throughout the entire yearbook. Great. And um, wasn't there anybody overseeing you? Like there was a there was a yearbook um, teacher who, you know, in, in retrospect, I think well, I think two things. Number one, we pos- we cost this poor guy his job eventually, um, and number two, you know, what was he? Why wasn't he watching us? And then number three, I think, well, he wasn't watching us because he thought that we weren't scumbags. But um, you know, we it was. I mean, I, I should. I could probably pile through it and find some example of it, but you know, I didn't obviously write all of it, but there was just, I mean, just racist, sexist stuff all, all throughout it. You know, there's, you know, there's a picture of a girl jumping and I think it says like great beaver shot or something like that. Um, but it's all, it's all through the book. Um, and so the, the yearbooks were to be released. Um, I don't know. It's like two weeks before the end of school and the administration gets the books and they see all of this stuff. And, of course, they they take it from us. Mm-hmm. And, oh, it's a huge community uproar. And, you know, I'm fucking 18 years old and I'm like, this is a First Amendment issue. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like one that. of my, it's one of the great regrets of my life, to be perfectly honest with you. Because, you know, you're 18. What, what the fuck did I know? Yeah. Um, so what happened? Did they have to so redo the whole yearbook? Or? They had to... The staff of the yearbook um, had to spend the summer redoing the whole yearbook. And so they put out an addendum um, before graduation so that students could get their yearbook signed. Um, so it was just like, you know, basically everyone in the in the book, I think, got to put out their or all the seniors got to put in their their senior wills. You know, I leave so and so this and so and so that. And so they put out this addendum so the seniors could get all of it signed. And then over the course of you know, a month or so in the summer, me and, you know, these nine other editors went through and rewrote the yearbook. But it was this huge deal. And, you know, my mom was an editor at the local newspaper. She was a society editor. And so they interviewed me and put my picture on the front page of the newspaper (laughs) saying, this is a First Amendment issue. How dare you? It was me and there's a, I, I can remember clear as day, it's me and um, my friend Pilar Savone, who is uh, a, a wonderful Hollywood producer, was nominated for the Academy Award 
for her work on Django Unchained uh, a year or two ago. She's a producer. Um, and a bunch of other people. And we're all splashed across the front page of this newspaper saying, you can't ban it. We wrote it for us. This is an exploration of who we are. And it was just the stupidest, dumbest thing on earth. And they absolutely should have banned it. And they had absolutely every right to ban it because yearbooks and student newspapers are not covered by the First Amendment. They are covered by the administration of of a high school. (laughs) And, you know, I'm I'm up there like, you know, you can't do this. We're going to... We had a sit-in. Oh, God, we had a sit-in. I remember this. Everyone sat in. The yeah. principal's office, there's like 400 of us in the, the principal's office saying, release this band yearbook. And I mean, I kind like, of appreciate oh the spirit of that. Yeah, I mean, the spirit of, of, of saying you can't ban us is good, but, you know, the adult me, I, I look at this thing and maybe I should, let's see if I can, if I can find it. Well, what you have to do is scan your picture at least and share it with our listeners. Oh, yes, my, I, I will scan. Oh, you know what? Did I ever talk about my time on in the Mime Show? Okay, let's save that for another episode. There's, there's photos of me as a mime in, Perfect. in this yearbook. Well, I mean, it does, you know, it is interesting because, like, I don't know, here now we're going back into my old foginess, but, like, teenagers say the worst stuff, and I'm so happy yeah. that the internet did not exist for me on a personal level at that oh, time. Oh, God, yes. I, God, yes. We wouldn't have this podcast. None of us would. We would, you know... We'd no. be in jail, and, probably. And, you know, the, the there's... I, I remember one of the pictures in here somewhere. I'll have to find it, but I, it doesn't matter. It was like there were there was, you know, two dudes and uh, it said, like, the Crips and Bloods planned their car wash. I'm like, um, you know, I, I, I look back on it and I think, yeah, what, what the, the fuck were we thinking? Mm. Um, but, you know, some things deserve to be banned. And the, the 1989 Palm Springs High School yearbook deserved to be banned. They're absolutely right. And I, I feel bad for the guy who was a teacher of the class. I feel bad for the poor principal of school who had to listen to my dumbass be like, you can't stop expression. Oh, God. Oh, oh yeah. well, youth. That's a, it's a good segue to the book that I wanted to revisit, um, which is subtitled The Classic Memoir of Adolescence. This actually, yeah, this came um, this came about because of this show, because we had read the David Foster Wallace essay, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. And in that essay, if you guys remember, he quotes a a review of the cruise line that was written by Frank Conroy. Mm -hmm. And during our discussion, I think one of you or both of you said like, oh, you know, Frank Conroy wrote one of the great. Memoirs, Stop Time. Stop Time is so a great book. I went and ordered it, and I read it um, maybe six months ago, and I wanted to bring it up back on the sh- back up on the show because it is brilliant. It is yes. hands down. I mean, I, I think it might be my favorite memoir that I've ever read, um, and I just think it's 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 so brilliant because it's um, well. I mean, I, I obviously related to a lot of you know, it's a coming of age story of a young young man um and uh there's there's like a lot of you know he he's he's in new york city but then he also moves to to florida and he's kind of in this like 
open spaces so obviously like you know we've talked about my obsession with the rural communities and young boys running around rural communities that's fine so that all fit perfectly i i, I can see the internet now writer strong dot 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 obsessed with young yeah. boys young dot, boys dot, dot, in rural communities <laughs> no but 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 what i what is amazing about this book is that it's really it's it's as opposed to a lot of memoirs that get a lot of attention like um Angela's Ashes, for instance. It's not about suffering. It's not about like Mm-mm. a troubled, awful childhood. In fact, I would say it's he's poor. Like he's not a rich kid. He's definitely like lower class and they're struggling and his family has their problems. But it's more a mediocre mediocrely bad family. Is that a word? Medio it's mm-hmm. it's just not it's not a horrible family life. It's not a horrible adolescence. It's just kind of typical and of a, of its time and place. And it's just incredibly well evoked. But then also, he has these passages that are these like meditative paragraphs. I mean, the, the title "Stop Time" it, it comes from these the one of these passages where he's just describing how he feels about time and memory, and how he relates to his own past. And these are some of the some of the most eloquent passages. I mean, it reminds me a lot of uh, we talked about Joanne uh, Beard on the show too. It reminded me of her sort of shorter memoir pieces that she writes where it's like these unremarkable things grow in meaning and it's not like a specific meaning like, and that's when I learned to never hit my sister again or whatever, you know. It's not like life lesson, like trite crap. It's like really intense interesting, kind of vaguely abstract, um you know, feelings that he had while growing up or while he has reflecting on his time growing up and it's beautiful and it's it, it, it's it, i'm amazed at how how much how quickly i got through it like how exciting it was to read because nothing really interesting is happening it's not one of these memoirs where it's like you know and then someone so beat me and i did no it's like just kind of normal um but you love him so much and you love his family and and well you don't really love his family but you just you get such a clear sense of these very you know real human characters um and they're not villains they're not it's really really good i i just i can't recommend it higher if anybody has any interest in like a great nonfiction read um stop time by frank conroe and and i think people don't i don't i don't think young people read stop time i mean the book came out in 1967 yeah. or something like that um you know what is a a great sort of companion piece to that writer if you're interested is a memoir called um mentor mm-hmm. by tom grimes um tom grimes was a student of frank conroy's at the university of iowa and basically you know conroy selected him like he was his guy and it's this book about his mentorship with conroy and how he never quite achieved what he wanted to achieve and he didn't end up writing a book basically worthy of what he thought hmm. conroy thought of him until he wrote this book mentor which just came out i think it's four years ago or something and is it about but it really conroy? goes into like as his also, mentor it's about conroy and it's about it's about tom grimes and it's about also what happened to conroy after stop time because you know stop time is a huge success and then conroy's subsequent books like body and soul were not were not these huge successes that stop time was and so it talks a lot about the idea of expectations and artistic expectations and the essence of you know literature among people and, and it's it's a it's a really good heartbreaking book about having a mentor and and, and not living up to what your promise is to that person right. until you write that book apparently um I, it was a great book i read it a couple of years ago it came out i don't know maybe two or three years ago um 
and I reviewed it somewhere. I, I think I reviewed it in the LA Times or in the newspaper in Las Vegas. And I got a nice email back from from Tom Grimes about it, um, actually, which is always nice. But it's a it's an interesting um, sort of companion piece to stop time if you're if you're interested in Tom yeah, Grimes later. Yeah, I, I kind of am because I, I mean, where this book begins is with him um, driving and being drunk drunk driving and like it doesn't seem like his present Mm -hmm. life is very happy that's sort of the hook the prologue and then it comes back to that at the end and he has a car accident and so all this book is sort of the idea is that it's all like happened in that one kind of moment book ended by what seems like a not so happy present so i'm curious as to what his life was like after this Uh, well you know he, he founded the university of iowa writing workshop so he did that that was a pretty good gig i did not realize um, that did he really he founded it oh, yeah okay. wow yeah. which is the um, preeminent writing program <laughs> in right the in, in the in the world yeah. okay <laughs> so he he had that going on well you know that's interesting um, because what i kept coming back to what kept striking me about this book is how often he returned to the concept of wordlessness and loss of language mm-hmm. and it's almost like it's this weird book because he's using all this beautiful language but he's mostly reaching for states where words failed him or where language wasn't at adequate um it's like a, it's right. co- it's a constant recurring theme like at one point he curls up with he like sleeps with the dogs that they have in this like kennel space in their backyard in florida and he like lives with them for like a night and he just he just describes like the wordless communication and love that he had with these dogs and throughout the book he just keeps coming back to this concept of like losing language as both this mm-hmm. fearful but exciting and important thing that he's kind of approaching and, and running away from constantly. It's a, so it's interesting that he founded a, you know, first of all, it's interesting that he writes a memoir, but then also that he founded a writing <laughs> school. Like, ah, I'm curious what he was like. Um, yeah. Outside of this book. Mentor, mentor shows a lot about sort of who he was, you know, from a, another person's point of view, which is interesting. And he had another book, um, another memoir that I want to say takes place in, Nantucket or something hmm. about his later life um, but yeah he was an, an interesting figure but Stop Time man that's a good book I, I have to reread that one too alright I cannot think of a good segue for mine my revisit has nothing to do with your guys' revisit so you can help me help me out there although it is nonfiction. Um, so it all stems from this weekend I went to Baltimore and I was on a plane and I bought, uh, I needed to buy a magazine for a plane because that's a compulsion. And uh, I didn't want to buy something <laughs> dumb, so I bought Outside Magazine, which is really a great magazine. Have you guys ever read Outside? No, but I feel we've actually read a couple of their essays yes, on the show. Have. I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, the um, wasn't the Tillicum yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, the animal magazine? one. A couple of the animal ones. Yeah. Um, I think the bears maybe, I, I don't want to misspeak, but um, yeah, When Animals Attack referenced Outside Magazine heavily. <laughs> Um, But yeah, if you're ever like in a place like that, this is a super side note, and you want a magazine that actually is going to deliver you really interesting literary content, um, Outside Magazine is a good place to go. Anyway, uh, I read this great piece uh, called The End of Everest about um, there was this huge accident on Everest this year. uh, There was a huge avalanche and a bunch of of Sherpas who were tied together clearing the way for rich westerners to oh, hike the yeah. next day I heard about all this. died and there were um there was basically like a huge sherpa conflict and revolt and you know now it, 
Oh, yeah, and they beat that guy up. Um, well, there right? was threats, but, you know, basically what's happening is that the Sherpas are saying, like, this is ridiculous, we need to get paid more. Because um, one of the fun facts from the article is a Sherpa who summits Everest, like, a really good payment for that experience is, like, $300. Um, so <laughs> it's what? just completely nuts. Um, so, uh, anyway, so that brought me back to the terrifying... <laughs> Horrifying, very popular work of nonfiction, Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. And if we have you guys read it? Have we talked about this before? Maybe. Yes. I have not read it, actually. No, oh, my God. Ryder, you would love it. It's horrifying. It's um, absolutely horrifying. Yeah. So Outside Magazine hired John Krakauer when he was, you know, just one of their staff writers, I think, and sent him to just hike Everest on, like, a nice, a nice easy climb with, like, the IMAX film team and... <laughs> <laughs> that happened to be this winter, I think in 1996 or 1994, where there was just all mm-hmm. kinds of disasters and tons of people died on the mountain. Um, but as a result, John Krakauer still wrote the book, which originally was going to be like, oh, well, he still wrote the article, which was going to be something much different than it ended up being. And he's gotten tons yeah. of backlash um, over the years for um, people saying he should have like helped people. Uh, on the mountain more and all that stuff. But, of course, your brain's not functioning because the oxygen's so low, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but anyway. And you're scared to death. Yeah. Well, but <laughs> I think people were also... It Wasn't he critical of other people and, and... Yeah. And a lot of those people died and he was sort of critical of them for their... For their decisions. Methods. Yeah. Right. Which right. everyone else was like, well, then why didn't you do something? Right. <laughs> kind of yes. Right. Um, but it's one of those instances where a book is so popular that I think we assume maybe that it's crappy or just like complete pulp but it's actually as todd can attest just a really gripping book and Mm -hmm. one of the first books ever that has made me turned me from something that i would hold open as a possibility for my life for the life of my loved one someday and made me decide definitely never do it definitely (laughs) never climb everest because it's extremely dangerous they're doing a movie you know everest about that expedition yeah, um, I'm not sure if it's the the Krakauer team. It's the team that died. Whatever the 14 people ahead right. of Krakauer, yeah. however many of them died, and, and whatever that expedition. I think that's what the expedition were with the movie. That you know expedition what? is what the movie's covering. The, that book also sort of did the same thing to me that Reading Wild did, which is that I knew that John Krakauer was going to mm-hmm. live, and I knew that Cheryl Strayed was going to live. But it didn't stop it from being breathtakingly horrifying the whole time. Yeah. And worrisome. Yeah, when um, she's running out of I, water and wild, like, I remember thinking, how the hell are you going to get out of this? It was like, well, she obviously yeah. did, you idiot. But I was still so, <laughs> so into that moment. I mean, that was terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Oh. It's absolutely horrifying. Yeah. We, we actually, when we went on vacation, we listened to it on audiobook, which wild. was quite With good. With Cheryl Strayed reading And the, the entire time I was thinking... And, you know, I know Cheryl Strait, so I know she's alive. I was thinking, you know what? This is fucking stupid. You're going to fucking die. Why are you doing this? Adventure! And, you know, I, that's, the, that's the suspension of disbelief that great writing does for you, is it makes you, mm-hmm. you know, not care that the boogeyman is fake, or in the case of nonfiction, know that the, the whatever the biggest thing that happens is, this person's still going to live. Um, and most likely keep their fingers if they actually wrote the book. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the big suspenses, one of the main things I remember from Into Thin Air, which is just, like, shocking, is that, you know, when people are near death up there, you know, it's very hard to tell if they're alive or not. Mm-hmm. And the same guy was checked and left for dead twice. 
And then he yeah, hauled himself that. down the mountain by himself, like, you guys, you, you forgot me. <laughs> and I love he it. In that your actually, version, he becomes the kid from a Christmas story, like all wrapped yeah, up. Yeah, it's so there cute, guys. This book is adorable. But you know, that's the perfect segue to Huck Finn. Huck Finn comes back from the dead, you know, twice. A couple times. Yeah. Yeah. He's the boy who he's the boy who wouldn't die. Yeah. Well, Huck Finn is also. I'm sure we'll get to this because I'm sure Ryder's excited about it. A poor rural teenager. Yes. <laughs> a poor rural abused teenager. Yes. Even and better. if I may do a triple tie-in, he uses a lot of inappropriate language, which Todd <laughs> finds relatable. Um, not really the language that he uses. I don't find no, no, relatable. I believe you did say the yearbook has Jesus. some racism in it, along with the sexism. Yeah, and, yeah. So. If only he had been an anti-Semite, I really would have been into yeah. it. <laughs> well, well, we should come back and start talking about Huck Finn. That's a good idea. Yes, a great idea. let's take an arbitrary break. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Julia Pistel. I'm here with my friends, Todd Goldberg and Ryder Strong, and we are about to discuss... You, you might remember us from such things as the first 30 minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you might remember us from 30 seconds ago. <laughs> <laughs> you might remember us from the previous 60 episodes. <laughs> uh, so, today we will be discussing, much to my delight and not at my suggestion, the classic American novel... Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Now, first thing I want you guys to notice here, very important, not important at all, but if you're going to sound like a Twain scholar, there is no the. It's not the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, mm. but it is the Adventures of Tom Sawyer. So Interesting. Think about that. What, why is that? I have no clue. I what? think it could be completely arbitrary. <laughs> <laughs> I like there my edition. Some... I'm assuming that this is all part of the text because my edition has Mark Twain Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer's Comrade, seen the Mississippi Valley time early 19th century. I do not have that uh, on the cover. But yours does have the author's note, right, or the explanatory, and then the notice before the book yeah, starts. Yeah, yeah. I have a like part of the book. I have a bunch of that. My edition uh, came out in 2003. It's the George Stade, consulting editorial director, with the introduction by Robert O'Mealy, Barnes wow. and Noble classic. Oh. Yeah. Yes. So, um, so just uh, we've already discussed that um, I work at the Mark Twain House, and so this is going to be a fun episode for me. Um, but I do want to say right off the bat that uh, Mark Twain. There's so many people that are obsessed with him, and I do not consider myself a scholar of Mark Twain, and at this point I have learned that there's so many um, wrong ideas and myths that have been passed down that you may hear me say, I don't know, a lot, um, because I don't want to say the wrong thing, because a lot of people will attack me. So but watch out, Aaron, guys. He, he got into a duel with Aaron Burr, though. That's right. Yes, and he won, and that's how Aaron <laughs> Burr died. Mark Twain <laughs> killed Aaron Burr. Yeah. He also so, killed Raymond Burr. That I'm sure of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really hated those Burrs. So, um, okay. So, I guess we should start by uh, finding out if you guys liked it. Is there any way anyone could not like this book? 
did you guys like it? <laughs> yeah. How was the yeah. reread? How'd the reread go? The reread was was really good for me. Um, I was sitting on my sofa rereading it, and I said within five pages of starting it to my wife, I was like, "Oh, so this is an amazing novel that I've completely in my mind relegated to children's literature that I read when I was twelve. Mm-hmm. And within like the first five pages, I was completely in. And, and I've been talking about this actually on my uh, own Facebook page today because I I had said last night how struck I was about what an amazing novel this was and how it was not what I remembered. And I've come to think that when I read this when I was a kid, that I must not have read the actual version of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. That you maybe read one of those kid versions? Yeah, because I I I think I did that when I was like really young. I think either my parents read to me a kid version or I read it, yeah. I remember the the big plot points, but I don't remember... I don't remember the context of it. So, but again, when I was 12, what did I know about the Annabellum South? I didn't know anything about the Annabellum South. But then isn't it also just part of our cultural, like a lot of the big plot points we already know and the imageries are so iconographic mm-hmm. and like, you know, mm-hmm. Huck with a straw hat and pushing a pole down the, you know, like I feel like we have the, I don't know. There's so much yeah. of it that's built into us without us even realizing, you know, that I think most people might feel like they've read it even if they haven't. That's yeah, and I, I I was struck almost immediately by the fact that it is not a happy story. You know, it, okay. it's, you know, Huck Finn is, is, you know, he's kept enslaved by his father who beats yeah. him. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously the direct parallel to Jim is, is pretty obvious, but it's so elegantly done um, that I, I was struck how unreliable of a narrator Huck Finn is and how Twain goes to pains to make his struggle with Jim be a natural one, an organic one, so that his realization, and we're not, I don't think we're spoiling anything to say that Huck doesn't let Jim get sold down the river, basically. Um, and, you know, that, that he decides, you know what, go ahead and send me to hell. I'm not going to let this happen to this guy. It's... It, it, it feels, you know, heroic. And I think that's that's an amazing bit of writing. I do have some problems with some parts of the book, but we, we'll, we'll get to that later. But I, I thought it was, I thought it was sort of a revelation. I was, I was really, um, I was really sort of amazed by it. And it's funny and it's sad and it's um, certainly of its time. But I, I, I absolutely wholeheartedly admire the novel more than I ever have after having read it in this last week. Awesome. How about you, t- writer? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I guess what's funny, I read it, so I read it, I thought I had read it when I was a kid, but I think, like I said, I read one of those kiddie versions, and then I definitely read it in high school, and then read it again my freshman year in college, so I read read it twice, but pretty close together, you know, between Mm -hmm. the ages of, like, 17 and 19, um, and then I haven't read it since, so rereading it, I, I didn't expect to for it to feel as strange as it did, but it still felt very strange, it's a very strange book, and um, I didn't, you know, I didn't expect it to feel so um, organic and human and messy. It just, mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, you know, what I kept thinking about when I was reading is like how how quickly it shifts in tone and like crazily it shifts in tone. You know, it's like it starts off with this sort of like us kids pretending to be robbers and I don't want to be civilized, and then it's like, and then Pa was chasing me around because he was drunk again and he was going to kill me, and you're mm-hmm. like. 
oh my god, like, you know, it's just, that's actually real. And Huck, you don't realize it because you're a 13-year-old kid, so there's no difference for you between, like, how, you know, aunt, how you're, how the widow is trying to civilize you and your father is trying to beat you. Like, those are kind of the same forces a little bit in Huck's mm-hmm. mind. And, of course, as a reader, you're able to see through that and just be horrified, but then also still kind of find parts funny that should be horrifying, like parts of the feud. So yeah. the the comparison that I made, and maybe this is just because I watched the Fargo TV show recently on a binge, but I, I, I it felt like a Coen Brothers movie. Like the way that their films can like shift crazily between like, that's hysterical and oh my God, that's awful. Right. And like, and now it does that in a second within the same scene or the, you know, that's how this book feels. And it's, that is such an accomplishment. I mean, I can't, you can't say that about almost any I don't know. It just, it really, that part worked. I, I feel like the the swings into humor worked less and less for me as the mm-hmm. book went on. And I feel like the Duke and the King section goes on way Forever. too long. Forever. And then, yeah, I mean, in general, like, it seems like where, uh, you know, where uh, uh, Mark Twain set aside the book, which we will talk about um there's a section that we were just discussing before we started recording where he set aside the book like what he added after that or some like the feuds one of my favorite sections but all the duke and king stuff just goes on too long and makes the same point over and over um and then of course tom sawyer is such an asshole and oh, he enters tom the picture sawyer. you just hate him so much yes. which i know is the point but that again took too long like that's like 80 pages at the end of this book of just realizing how much you hate Tom and how much you love Huck and Jim and you want them to get back on the river and you just kind of want to go back to the beginning. So I really, yeah. it's, it, the book gets worse as it goes on and, and I would say if anybody wants to really just, I mean, obviously everybody should read this book, but if you want to cheat, just read the first like 200 pages and then you know that the last 80 pages is just uh. Tom fucking things up. It's horrible. <laughs> it's so boring. I started okay. skipping paragraphs because it's like, oh, what else did you do to make Jim's life a living hell and like I get the point like I get that Tom sucks and that he is the white you know privileged kid who doesn't recognize how easy it is for him to have all this and Huck is not that like I got all the social justice sort of embedded in this sort of fun hijink story and I also got how much it had changed from the beginning of the book which is mm-hmm. you know begins with him having fun with Tom and you think it's all kind of cute and fun 12 13 year old boy stuff and then at the end you hate all that stuff you just like want to throw the book you know because you're like stop being a child grow up and I love that the book made you feel that way. Um, I but... like that Tom got shot. So, okay. <laughs> totally. All right, guys. Wow. I haven't even said if I've read the book before. All right? Relax. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> uh, you know, I would not say don't read the whole thing. I would not <laughs> recommend that. Um, because as I'm going to repeat, too, every reading of this book is new. And there's differences and, you know, nuance to find and the frustration of Tom keeping Jim in captivity is, you know, like maybe it's okay that we feel frustrated. It's not easily solved. Um, I will say that Twain's not known for his brevity, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's not like an insanely long book. It's 280 pages. It's yeah. pretty short. short. Uh, so read it if you're going to read it. Um, so for me, like I really care deeply emotionally about this book. I read it in high school and I really struggled with it. I really struggled with the dialect. Um, the dialect is really about. tough. It is and, hard. Yeah. And I mean, um, when Jim there are speaks, versions that clean painful. up the dialect, aren't there? And we'll we'll talk about the different versions, I'm sure. But sure. Um, I think so. Isn't there one that does that? I think there is. 
There must be. I mean, there's so many different versions of this. It's in the public domain. Anyone can do anything they want to it, and they do. Um, but then I read it. Um, it's funny, writer. Just like the difference a couple years makes. I read it at the end of my junior year of college, just when I was like deep in my deepest into my English majorness. You know, I was reading this and like a lot of Faulkner, and yeah. it ch- I mean, this really pushed me over the edge to being committed to books for life. I just loved yeah. it so intensely, and then knowing that I had read it only a few years earlier, basically as a child, like that that I could grow up that fast and understand the book so much more was very meaningful to me at the time. And for me right now, it's hilarious because, you know, I get that um, dumb, like, oh, how often do you use your English degree? You know, and I'm like, every goddamn day somebody asks me a question about Huck Finn. So, um, you know, I feel, no I just, I love this book. That's, a, that's the benefit of being a professional writer is no one ever asked me what I'm doing with yeah. my degree. No, I mean, no one asked me that anymore but it, it's pretty common it's at the top of list of like pointless degrees for people who are stupid yeah. but uh anyway um you know it's just an incredible book for so many of the reasons that you guys have already touched on um i, yeah. I was really surprised by um well by a lot of it but most specifically by the amount of total abject violence there is in this book mm-hmm. um and the corollary to that is so there's there's a point during the feud where Huck sees um, Buck killed, and his reaction to Buck's murder is pretty profound. Where he basically says that he'll never unsee it, and that you know it's going to affect him for the rest of his life. And he goes on to go on to his next adventure and doesn't really comment on it again. But what the text shows is that he's obviously telling this story and the older version of Huck who is relating this story is deeply affected by these deaths. So the the feud itself seems silly until all of a sudden this little this kid is murdered in front of mm-hmm. Huck Finn and you realize okay oh, these are actual dead bodies. Mm-hmm. And by the same token when the the king and the duke are basically lynched and rolled through town, um, tarred and feathered. In my childhood mind, I found that amusing. And in my adult mind, I'm thinking, oh, those two guys are going to get murdered. They're going to go kill those fucking guys. And it really changed the way I experienced the book. And it taught, I mean, the book is a lot about what justice means and what humanity means. And I, I think, you know, early on where he says, um, that he doesn't pay any mind to dead people or what, what's it's a line like that mm-hmm. uh, and it's, it's a famous line but yeah. what the book goes on to show is that he does yeah. that he is affected by every single person who dies along the way including his father um which you know i i, I thought was very interesting and I, I don't know about you guys probably not you guys because you've read it recently i had completely forgotten that it's huck's father in the house and so yeah. when Jim reveals it, I'm like, oh, oh, yeah. I was really surprised by that. Um, yeah. And then I had to go read that section over again to see what Jim does, which is he saves Huck from seeing his dead father. Dead father. Yeah. yeah, which it's incredible. Which is, you know, it's his first. It's his first real of, move towards like, yeah, being being Huck's surrogate father. In a way. Right. Exactly. Well, I mean, there's so many. So I um, I didn't reread the whole book. Sorry. Uh, because I've read it 
at least once a year for the past five years. But um, I really dug into the early, you know, 50 pages this time. And Mm -hmm. everything about Pat Finn is so beautifully done. I mean, it's so sad Mm -hmm. in such a real way, as you were mentioning earlier, Todd, like the poverty and the struggle. And there's this scene where, you know, like Huck's been bitching about having to have learned to read and stuff. And, you know, there's this incredible short scene where his father makes him read and says, you know, basically what is now a cliche um, of like, oh, you think you're, you think you're better than your dad. You think you're better than your father. They're trying to make you better than me. And it's just so powerful and sad and real. And I just, you know, I had forgotten like how meaty that was. Um, side note, you guys will like this. There is a uh, spinoff novel that's really good about the life of Pap Finn by mm. uh, this author named John Clinch, and it's really good. I won't say too much about it, but it really examines, you know, how Pap got to that point in the novel. But yeah, oh, wow. it's called just called Pap, right? Or it's called or Finn. 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 Oh, okay, I knew it was one. Of them. Yeah. Um, and I was reminded yeah. of with Pap Finn. I was reminded of Magwitch from Great Expectations, and mm-hmm. and then there's all those books that have taken off from the cent- the central characters in Great Expectations have been you know in, in these these tie-in books basically. The the thing I found also interesting about Pap is that he has that anti-Obama screed in there as yeah. well. <laughs> you yeah. guys know what I'm talking about? Where he has, yep. he goes on his entire it's anti-government like thing. <laughs> Fucking <Yeah>. Obamacare. <laughs> Get the government yeah. out of my child. <laughs> and yeah. I was struck by, oh, you know, it, it doesn't matter who's in office. There's if When you become delusional... You start blaming the government for all of your problems, and and that's that's lasted since the the beginning of government, which I I found amazing. <laughs> yeah, and it's really funny. Like this is one of those things that's dark and funny. I mean, Huck basically says like, I knew he was drunk enough for me to sneak out because he started talking about the government. Like that's yeah. my sign. Um, <laughs> which is hilarious. Um, yeah, I mean, but yeah, we we have to talk a lot about Jim um, because Jim is one of the greatest characters in American literature and like you know you say that that's the first moment that he starts protecting Huck but there's hints of it all over the very beginning of you know him him saying that you know he heard about Huck's completely fake uh, funeral and search for his body and that he was worried and upset and you know it's he's just this presence watch, watching over Huck and he calls Huck so honey interesting. he calls Huck mm-hmm. honey almost from the beginning mm-hmm. which I was struck by it's such um, a beautiful relationship. It's yeah. Just, and it, you know what? It's it's so effortless. That's what's so amazing about it. It's like every time you read this book, you, you kind of, the way that they come together and the way that they're both fugitives and then they decide to help each other. And like, it's it's such a beautiful sequence and it's so effortless that you just, it, you, it's so, um, it's just, it, it's heartwarming. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it's so well earned, mm-hmm. I guess, because you're reading it and you're like, well, there's, Every time, even though you know the story, you know what's happening. It's like, well, these two are going to, you know, not really connect or have much to say to it. And then, like, by 80 pages in, you're just, they're the two you're rooting for so much. And and that relationship is going to save them both. Oh, it's so beautiful. I'm, I'm yeah, waiting for and- Boz Lerman, though, to do a, a remake of it where they're a buddy cop Christ. team. Huck is the impetuous <laughs> cop and Jim is the older African-American sergeant on his way out. And together... <laughs> They're gonna turn LA over, that because that could happen. Baz Luhrmann could. could do that. Yeah, that, um. I mean, 
Yeah. One thing that is always interesting to me when I go back to it, because I kind of forget about it, though, is that um, Jim isn't this, like, Morgan Freeman character. He's really superstitious. He believes in a lot of crazy shit. Uh, you know? And that's a... <laughs> that's an interesting layer, you know? And, you know, he's surrounded by death and omens and... Um, yeah, well, that's part of the reason... Ideas that would make Ryder really upset. <laughs> but no, but I think... But I think there is something, and I'm, you know, and this is a question that maybe you have more insight to, Julia, but like, you know, there's, there's, there's a stereotype that, that is being utilized here Mm -hmm. and be, and, and, you know, there's a lot of the, like, you know, the, you know, crazy darky who doesn't understand logic and reality and has all these stupid ideas and that, that Tom, especially, but Tom and Huck both take advantage of. And, you know, this crazy superstitions and, like, old folk logic. That, and it's like, and, you know, they're also the, the dialect, the way it's written, sometimes pushes it, the, the book into that. Pushes Jim, especially as a character, into caricature. And I guess, I you know, I'm a little uncomfortable with that at times. Because it seems yeah. like we're supposed to be laughing at Jim. And I'm not sure how conscious Mark Twain was of that. I mean, obviously... He wants Jim to be a fully realized character in some ways, but in terms of the dialogue and some of the moments, it's like we're laughing at Jim, you know, and like, I'm not sure like that. And that I wasn't always super comfortable with that. I was always like, "Eh, how far away is is Mark Twain from just using the stereotype for a laugh? But then I I mean, he he does that up to a point. He does that up until the point when they are separated and Huck comes back to Jim and tries to convince Jim that the time of the fog yeah no that was that's that's like the most important scene in the whole right and that's that's obviously the stereotype joke well not really i mean they still have the like when they dress him up and say he's a sick arab and like which you know you're kind of like oh that's weird but then he like stumbles out towards huck and it's kind of a comedic moment of like huck falls out of the boat backwards and is so like scared of jim in this crazy stupid outfit and like just the way that they (laughs) dress him up and like you know he becomes a sort of prop for white people like Mm -hmm. you know not just literally as property of as a slave but like um a butt of the joke of the book so that it just was a little weird, you know, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure because there's obviously so much humanity behind the writer of this book um, that I, I trust that Mark Twain had all the best intentions, but I also feel like he's still at a time where trafficking and stereotypes was par for the course, and like he had to do it a little bit. It's sort of like nowadays, like you watch a good comedy movie, and it could be a very smart com- comedy movie, but it's still gonna have like some stereotypical characters in it, you know, like left and right. And in some ways I feel like the comedy, that's why the comedy of this book failed. In fact, I I don't think it's a satire. I'm just going to throw that out. I don't think it's funny. I think it's not a satire. So we're supposed to, so the people that laugh too long, too much at this book are the people we're actually supposed to be laughing at. Okay. Well, all right. You're saying a lot of stuff here. So let's slow it down. Um, I think that (laughs) what you're getting at is, actually what makes the book really great and what makes my job interesting which is that I think you're actually giving this is the moment where I get fired uh, Twain too much <laughs> too credit, much credit. Right. Um, I think that what is incredible about him as a person 
and incredible about Huck as a narrator is is not the plot, is not even the setting or the time period. It's that this is one of the best novels of watching someone struggle with and against their beliefs in a time where those beliefs are forced to change. So that happened to Twain over his life. Um, you know, he, there were slaves in his early life, and then he employed a freed slave as his butler for his, you know, 20 years in Hartford. So he was thinking and grappling with these issues in the same time that he was writing this novel, and this is a huge thing that people um, think and talk about this novel. It took him 10 years to write. He wrote it off and on. He, um, like, you know, at the beginning, it's obviously just like the book Tom Sawyer, which has just almost none of the, like, insight and struggle of this one, and, you know, ends in a place where everything he wrote after this was kind of, like, messy and weird because he was struggling with his own ideas and beliefs and doing so very publicly in a way that I think is is really a lot more unusual than we would want. And one issue with this book, this is raising a whole new thing, but um, uh, it's, it's banned, but more than it's banned, it is being not chosen as the book with which to discuss race issues because I think very rightly you know they want to pick a book by uh, authors like authors of color like you know notes from a native son or black boy or anything like that and what we're maybe losing in that choice and making that a dichotomy is that this is a book of someone struggling against their own racism um, and and Mm -hmm. changing their mind this is a book about someone truly changing their mind Right, um, and that but is amazing. Are you, are you positing that it's it's both Huck who's changing his mind and also and Twain. Mark Twain yeah. who's changing his mind? Okay. Well, I mean, Twain's mind at this point had been changed, but that doesn't negate the. I mean, it's not that black and white, of course. Like you know, he can employ a freed slave, but also believe in all these stereotypes, which is your right. original mm-hmm. question, or not believe in them but use them and. You know, that's the way that he was able to see these characters. But it does feel um, like, I mean, part of the, what this, the wonder of this book, and, and maybe this relates to what I was talking about earlier, how it feels kind of organic and strange, is that it feels like, it almost feels like it could go anywhere. Like he, like, I, there's something really open-ended about this book that I I really, just hearing you say that, I believe that Mark Twain does, didn't know where it was going to go exactly. And he... Twain, it feels like Twain is working this out him, himself at, through the book. Like, the plot yeah. is, is, like, he's figuring it out as he goes, step by step. And there's a genuine, like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know if Huck knows what's going to happen next. It, 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 I, it, it's a really uneasy feeling. It's an unsettling book. It's a constantly unsettling book. And so I believe that he was working something out, you know, that he Absolutely. was still trying to figure out what to do with these characters and tonally what to do. And, and it's amazing that it it still worked. I mean, one thing that really is just deeply annoying to me about this book, and it's evident from both of your stories at the beginning of this segment, is that um, people think of it as a children's book because the narrator is a child, which is just so fucking infuriating because it's lost. It's lost Mm -hmm. on kids who need to work this stuff out in their own time through their own experience. I mean, what's incredible about um the big scene the big all right i'll go to hell scene um is that huck is actually choosing the culturally wrong decision he's choosing Mm -hmm. to be wrong because of his individual relationship with jim because his religious 
pull is stronger than obviously his pull to uh, free the slaves, which in the context of the book, you know, is the absolutely morally wrong choice. Um, even though, of course, we know now that that's exactly right. But it's really a beautiful moment because he's making that decision out of his own experience and not through some deus ex machina of, you know, like, I guess Mm -hmm. the right thing is going to heaven or I guess the right thing is, you know, freeing the slaves because, yeah, emancipation. There's there's an earlier example of, like, the kind of morality that Huck is building. It's, um, I don't know if you guys caught this, but what have they just done? They, They screwed over the guy's... Who they the murderers that they found in that one boat, mm-hmm. um, and and so Huck is thinking about how they they've left him. He goes, "I begun to think how dreadful it was, even for murderers, to be in such a fix." Mm-hmm. I says to myself, "There ain't no telling, but I might come to be a murderer myself yet." And then how would I like it? And so they right. decide to like go back and help. And it's like I just remember reading that this time. I was like, "What? That's like the most extreme form of empathy, <laughs> you know? Like and." Mm-hmm. I just love that his morality is is like new morality is being formed out of this extreme empathy. I mean, that, to look at people that you know are awful people, murderers, and to be able to say, "Well, I could be them someday," right? And it's like I just loved that, and it's 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 already there. You know, the seeds are being planted for him to to start feeling, you know, that everybody's a human being and everybody deserves a shot. And well, I just yeah, it's I mean, it's the true evolution of character because he starts right. in one place and you actually see the process by which he becomes a human being, you right. know, like he's, he's not playing cops and robbers or not cops and robbers. He's not playing robbers anymore with Tom Sawyer and the other kids in the cave. He's actually doing it. You know, he's actually yeah. involved in, you know, a, a giant long lasting con, basically. Um, <laughs> and it turns out that it's not so simple as killing a guy or holding someone for ransom that there there is a human element to that stuff and i think you know as a person who writes crime fiction specifically you know i i was reading this and i was thinking about really all the elegant cons that go into this book and it's a series of extraordinarily elegant cons that that Mm -hmm. go into it but also the series of character decisions that huck makes to finally arrive at the right decision that you know what if if hell means helping this guy then i'm going to hell and the organic arrival of that is is really cool i think the challenge um you know with with the jim character specifically and my dogs agree (laughs) the the challenge with the jim character specifically is being able to read him like being Mm -hmm. able to work through what twain was doing with his dialect to actually get to the character of him outside of his actions to understand that his dialogue is showing that evolution of character too so that by the time we find out that you know there's that scene where he's sitting there with his head between his knees crying for his wife and children that we realize he is a character who exists beyond huck's interpretation of him and beyond the dialect that twain has saddled him with which makes him almost impossible to read mm-hmm. well can i say so- i want to talk about the dialect because my first very very distinct memory of this book is when I was a sophomore in high school and I was a super nerd and I was assigned to read it and I was going to read it, god damn it. Um, <laughs> but the dialect was so overwhelming and I feel that this is probably very common. 
that I had to read it out loud to understand it. There was yeah. no other way to understand it as a 15-year-old white girl living in suburban New Jersey. Yeah. Um, and that was, like, you know, the sense of shame of reading that out loud and the sense of experience that the difficulty of the dialogue presented to me. I mean, that is extreme empathy, you know, mm-hmm. to say that I must voice this character's crazy, <laughs> you know, syllables, the way they're written on the page, mm-hmm. you know, that forces an empathy that um, is just so much, I, I, stereotypical or not, I'm happy the dialogue, the dialect is in there for that very reason of, right. you know, saying, like, finding the humanity in those words as they are printed because... You know, otherwise it would be so easy to skim over, and it would be more mm-hmm. like Uncle Tom's Cabin, mm-hmm. you know, where it's just, you know, a book for white people. Right. Um, it's very different having to being forced to read it out loud. But I mean, it's white people who are also banning it and neutering it. So, so this <laughs> well, is <laughs> a word on the original banning. Just a side note. Sorry, okay. I have too much knowledge. Yes. Um, it was not originally banned for any of the reasons that it's banned today. It was banned because it said. Um, sweat instead of perspired. That was You're its first me. banning. I'm not kidding. What? And he itched and scratched. That was the reason cited by the first public library that banned it. But go on. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> that's that was, crazy. Like, crude were those real reasons? Or, yes, like, were those they are just the real reasons. Weird. Oh, that's those bizarre. are the real reasons. The, I mean, that was like saying, you know, like it would be the same as a book being banned from the library, or like a children's book being banned from the library for saying like shit and crap. Right. Wow. Well, yeah, obviously, obviously, there's a lot of uproar in relation to uh, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn because of the persistent, you know, almost sentence by sentence use of the word nigger, which happens throughout the entire book by all mm-hmm. the characters. Yeah. Um, and so there. There are versions that don't have that word in it. Roddy, Which were is, you, it's just or were so you stupid to me. That they replaced it with slave, or was it you, Julia, that me. said Julia that? Julia that said that. But that's just yeah. so dumb, because it's as if the word is the problem, right? Mm. Like, but it's more like the sentiments throughout the book that are horrifying. Right. Which is like what the book is working through. So to ban this because of that word, or to not, you know, to not be comfortable discussing it because of a word, is just, it's, it's so infuriating, because it misses... To me, the entire point. Um. Yeah, I mean, I I do, you know, I I completely agree with you. But uh, this is again a fact of it being like misassigned to kids who are too young, because in a lot of schools, um, the kids really, ha- you know, they feel assaulted by that by that yeah. word being thrown in there over and over and over. Um, and of course, it's like in the context of the book, which is very difficult, written right. by a white man. You know, it's it's hard. You have to, if you're going to discuss it, which I think it should, it, you know, it should absolutely be discussed as a book. Um, well, you, you and you can't discuss this book. Yeah, you can't discuss yeah. this book without dealing with it because it's, you it's hugely prevalent. But, but fine, so don't teach it to, you know, eighth grade and below. Teach it to high school. Right. So. I mean, like, I definitely think that this book is good for somebody who, be, I mean, the, the, it's a, oh, it's such a sophisticated, simple to read book. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's incredibly sophisticated, but it's not hard to read. Mm-hmm. It uh, is hard to read. I, you you're think it's forgetting hard to read? what it's like to be 15. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to read. 
I don't the, know. Particularly like, the King and the Duke sections, that's hard to read well, because it's boring, it's boring and you want to yeah. kill yourself. <laughs> but I mean, no, I mean, in terms of, like, I don't know. Certain like, parts are easier than others, but, you know, you're dealing with the dialect, you're dealing with, you know, it's a picaresque, so there's not actually a plot that we're following, you know, from page one to page 280. Um, it's, the sentences are long, the, the language is dated, um, it's not, it's, it's not an easy book. Like, if you think, if you're talking about putting this in a public classroom of a not great school district, um, it's a tough, it's a tough book. Now, I absolutely think it's worth it, but it's really hard to read. This is not the same as putting To Kill a Mockingbird in, in a classroom. Right. That is so much easier to read than this is. But let, me, let me ask you a I question. I thought of so, this as pretty simple just because Huck's language itself is pretty simple. Like, he's very... He's, you know, obviously he's multi-layered as a narrator. Like, you know, he is a, a form of a sort of unreliable narrator because he's a kid. But, like, he... I mean, his language, it's not its not like Moby Dick, which I would say is, is difficult to read. You know, like, vocabulary words you have to look up. And, like, this is something that I'm assuming a, a somewhat a savvy 16-year-old can get through and be like, all right, I get that this is a 13-year-old talking to me. Or, actually, how old is Huck? That's a good question. Huck's 14. Undetermined. 14? It, it isn't. Um, it, is it, he, yeah, says, he says that Buck was about his age, 13 or 14. Yeah, but it's never exactly named. Yeah, I, think I was surprised by that this time through. I was like, where does it say he's eight? Because in my mind, he's 13, but I didn't know if that Well, and he's accurate. also narrating the book from some distance from it. You know, it's right. not... He's, he's recounting the story. Let, let me ask you a question, Julia, since you have to work at the house. Um, and it goes back to what we were just talking about in regards to the N-word. Um, and that's the cultural appropriation. So here we have basically one of the first popular novels that is... You know, basically saying the best thing that can happen to an African American is to have a white person save them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where where does that fall historically? I mean, do you know what what's what's the conversation around that? Um, you know, in my experience, uh, I that hasn't come up very much. But you know, I'm coming. At a, from a place where most people who come there are into Mark Twain. So right. um, that's not necessarily to represent everybody. I think that it can be argued uh, that Jim rescues Huck in the beginning well, sure. of the book. So that does change things, at least for me. Um, I mean, it's interesting because the Twain House shares a lawn with the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center, which I just realized is common knowledge to, like, only me and 30 other people. Uh, <laughs> so that's fascinating. Um, that is. The way that we talk about um, our historical context versus the Stowe Center, because Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, which even less people read than are currently reading Huck Finn, but is also an interesting novel, um, is much more, it has more depictions of slaves running away and freeing themselves but it's also written extremely didactically from like a activist white woman Harriet Peter Stowe who mm. was awesome but you know it's to me and her work it's much more clear um, that that perspective that you're mentioning but I mean I'm sure that's a huge objection that, that people have but you know the novel one thing that's really unique about this and I think has allowed it to survive is uh Huck's class issues being so mm-hmm. close. I mean, he's like, I do an exercise with students at the Twain House where I say, like, 
okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, what is Huck's status um, just as, like, a person in the culture? And a lot of the kids uh, who aren't thinking say 1 because they think he's, like, the lowest of the low because he's poor and, like, homeless and abused. Um, but really, he's a two, and Jim's a one. So Jim's they're very right. so close together. Yeah, they're so close together that that relationship. Um, well, I would say I, Jim's I don't know. a I, negative ten. Like, I mean, Jim's not even you know. Jim's yeah, but he's property. Well, you're he's, going he's, off my like, scale. But the award, <laughs> the award for it, Jim is higher than the award for Pap, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I just Huck is Huck is definitely like one. Like he is so out of the realm. Like I also just love how like Huck. You know, I mean, this is a classic part of a picaresque. It's like. He's sort of present, but also just watching so many scenes. Like, he's sort of an insider-outsider of so many of these little towns that they go into. And he's, like, participating and helping, but then just kind of commenting and, like, getting dragged along. And it's, you know, it's something only a child can do and get away Mm -hmm. with. And it's, like, whenever they turn to him and they're like, what about the boy? You're like, oh, my God. You feel like like (laughs) characters are suddenly looking at you. Yeah, it's, like, it's so, it's such a great perspective for a book. He's such a brilliant character. I just I wanted to read something early on that like really struck me as like the classic example of how this book operates, and that's uh, um, when Jim and him are on the island, and Jim's like you know the, the rattlesnake skin, like Jim's going through all his list of like weird, suspicious stuff that he believes, and um, and Huck says to the reader, Jim said bees wouldn't sting idiots, but I didn't believe that because I had tried them lots of times myself, and they wouldn't sting me. And it's like, <laughs> what a crazy sentence. It works yeah, on so many levels. Because it's like, on one level, you're like laughing at like this funny idea of like, they won't sting idiots. And then it's like this weird logic of like, oh, so they won't sting idiots. So you tried them. And then they, but then it's also, you know, so it's like this funny house of cards logic is built on a right. really stupid premise. So the fact that he's talking about it is pretty stupid. But then this sad fact that he calls himself an idiot in that sentence, you're like, Oh, that's really heartbreaking. So like, you could mm-hmm. pick the sentence apart on so many levels, and like Huck as a narrator is is only aware of like one of those levels, you know. And mm-hmm. and I just I I love that. That's like a quintessential uh, Mark Twain sentence for me because he's such a master of, um, you know, deadpan irony and like putting that into the text uh, so so effortlessly. It's I just love it. Um, yeah, that's a and great the other one. thing I, I stopped on that one too. The other thing that I really just want to talk about is, like, how, again, without a huge vocabulary given to Huck, he's able to describe night scenes and nature scenes Mm -hmm. and, like, just the way the river is so well. I just want to read one. Towards night, it begun to darken up and look like rain. The heat lightning was squirting around low in the sky, and the leaves was beginning to shiver. It's just like, what? Yes. Like, you see that. You feel that. And, like, at one point he says, like, it was getting late. It smelt late. You know mm-hmm. what I mean. Um, and you're like, yeah, I do, Hawk. I totally know I what do. you mean. He's like, I don't have the words for it. He says at that point, I don't quite have the words for it. You're like, you're doing fine. It's like he, <laughs> it's it's just amazing how, um, you know, how well described these things are with a very limited vocabulary in that dialect. And I guess that's what I meant by... To me, it seems simple because the you know Huck's language itself is kind of rugged and simple. Mm-hmm. It's not, it, it, but it's not. Of course, it's incredibly rich and dense and layered. But it's layered in terms of logic and um, multiple voices going on and arguments in his head. And it's layered in all the great ways, not layered in the ways that I think like a Melville wrote or other nineteenth-century writers wrote, where 
you know, it's layered on the level of language and complexity of sentence structure that just makes it sort of hard to wade through some of those things. This is not that way for me. It, it feels more effortless. And, and Jim asks one of the greatest questions ever. Um, this is in the, the fog scene when he says, is I me or who is I? Mm. Like, oh, yeah. I know. That. <laughs> I mean, we're like in Heart of Darkness, Joseph yeah. Conrad. Yeah. It's like, it just, and it's, it's extraordinarily simple language. Um, I mean, it's, it's literally four words. Is I me or who is I? Um, yeah. But it also... It, it is the existential conundrum of man mm-hmm. and it happens during this scene where where he's being tricked basically mm-hmm. um, it, I, I think you know that's one of my favorite scenes in the book that whole scene I is mean. incredible yeah yeah, yeah. Can, can we talk briefly about Tom Sawyer yeah the why the, the I conniving said right before we started recording douche bro yeah douche he's a bro. horrible human being <laughs> He's a whore, and you know what? His island at Disneyland smells like piss. Yeah, well, I don't. Tom, I don't Tom get this. Sawyer. I don't. Why is Tom Sawyer like as equivalent of a hero as Huck? Like the, Tom Sawyer no, shouldn't he, even be mentioned in the same sentence. He and the is fact a that his movie has been He's made horrible. more times than Huckleberry Finn is so stupid. Oh, no. Tom oh. Sawyer is a bad person. Like he's yeah. literally a horrible human being. Yes. Yeah, it's and not he, cute. It's not like fun. No. It's just like you're a shithole. Like you, yeah. a shit heap. <laughs> a shit heap. Yes, oh a shit God. heap. You're a shit heap. Tom I mean, Sawyer's he, a shit heap. He, he could have gotten himself, Huck, and Jim killed. He, and he holds his secrets just because he wants to. It's just, I mean, he's just a terrible person. Yeah. So for those who have not read the book or haven't read in a long time, um, Tom knows that Jim has been freed. But in the name of adventure and rapscallionness, um, continues to... Or sociopathy. Or sociopathy. uh, You know, continues to let Huck and Jim go on, believing that they're in danger of being found out, and enacts this whole, like, giant adventure, tying up Jim experience. Um, Now, while I agree with you guys wholeheartedly, um, I'm not a fan of Tom, um... Let me just devil's advocate it, though, by saying, is Tom just a Huck who hasn't grown up yet, who has not yet had the experience? Is it really just a reflection back no. on the beginning of the novel? No. When, when no. you uh, put a person's life in jeopardy for fun, what they call that is a sociopath. You don't understand human empathy. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm, yeah, I Huck actually... Yeah, would never I, do that. I, no. I went back and reread the beginning of this book um, and noticed that... Um, it's a very clear difference between Tom and Huck in the beginning when, because Huck leaves his civilization, right? Like, because the mm-hmm. whole beginning of the book is that he's being civilized by um, the widow and, um, wow, what are their names? I'm blanking. Miss Watson and Miss Watson yep. and the widow Douglas. And the widow Douglas. Right. So they, they've taken him in and, and they're sort of like these, you know, religious and, you know, let do everything by the book and whatever. So they're trying to civilize Huck and he runs away and it's Tom that comes and gets him back. And mm-hmm. Tom lies to him and says, we're going to become robbers and you'll come back and, and we'll have adventures and it'll be fun. So I think Tom in throughout this whole book is a force of civilization, just like the, you know, the widow Douglas. Mm-hmm. And he's just a more clever, childish one. But like in a way that like Huck is is a child that craves freedom and adventure. He craves real freedom and real adventure. Tom... 
you know, Tom it represents like people that just want to reiterate a cultural values in a new and interesting way. So they're they're sort of like mischievous or whatever, but they're not actual rule breakers in the the sense that people should be rule breakers to think for themselves or to be free. Like Tom represents to me like the worst kind of rule breaker, like just a troublemaker for the sake of reiterating a culture's values, right or wrong. Like, so even though, like, that's what all that end stuff, he's like, oh, we got to be more adventurous and dangerous. But the truth is, he's just reiterating books that adults have mm-hmm. given him, you know, books. He doesn't know adventure. what ransom is. Yeah, it ran- <laughs> and, and like, and so all the crap that he's doing is a misinterpretation of like rule breaking in a childish in a in a way that civilization would actually kind of logically understand whereas what huck's arguing for which is like freedom for black people nobody could even fathom you know like and what huck's real freedom represents like when he gets on the river with jim is like an openness and an empathy and a human you know reaching outside of the bounds of any culture and just you know confronting the reality of another human being in front of him that loves him and that he loves and like Tom is incapable of that because Tom is completely part of his culture, even though he thinks he's like breaking the rules. It's, I think it's a very important distinction between the two of them, and I, I'm, I'm like proud to hate Tom. I think we're supposed to hate Tom, you know. And I don't yeah. know why Tom and Huck would be friends, particularly not at the end of this. Like Huck should be like class. You know what, Tom, I think it's class. I think I think Huck feels you know he's he's got a like Tom's the guy he's got to hang out with like because who else is he gonna he's got nobody in the beginning right. especially like yeah. and I want to go back I mean where, how does Huck play into Tom Sawyer's book he's like, there he's around he does all kinds of shenanigans but the big you know third act of Tom Sawyer is Tom and Becky lost in the caves um, right. and Huck's not there Jody Foster um, but I but I will say that you know I do not often reread Tom Sawyer in the way that I do Huck Finn. I just, you know, like, Huck Finn is it for me. This is the yeah. reason that, this is the best thing that Mark Twain ever wrote, hands down, easily, times yeah. ten. Yeah. And one of the best books that we have. And and Huck, as a person, is just so magnificently drawn, like, as we're saying, that it's hard to have anyone else even come close. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm horrified on a day-to-day basis that people can't remember which is Tom and which is Huck or, you oh know, like, it doesn't matter or they're, like, two nostalgic versions of the same thing, like, you know, that they're just boys with straw hats who are, like, silly, you know, that's, it's really a disservice to Huck, which, who I really consider a real person in my brain. Oh, well, <laughs> at the end of, even at the end of the, one of the earliest chapters, he says, Huck says, so then I judged that all the stuff was only just one of Tom Sawyer's lies. I reckon he believed in the Arabs and the elephants, but as for me, I think different. It had all the marks of a Sunday school. So he mm-hmm. totally yes. equates <laughs> Tom's lying to Sunday school. So right. it's like they're the same force. They're just different, op- you know, they're polar opposites of the same cultural force, which is, yeah, sorry. I, I just wanted to point yeah, that out. No, it's you're like right. Tom is- you're right. I agree. And I, I think, you know, the, the thing about Tom is I think we, people, romanticize Tom Sawyer because you know we all want to be the guy who gets away with it you know and this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately but um, as it relates to everything I've been writing about the last 15 years of my life but um, you know we all want to be the guy that nobody fucks with right Mm -hmm. we want to be the guy who gets away with it and it's sort of a uniquely American ideal the the freedom to break the law and and that's what Tom Sawyer is he's the freedom to break the law what Huck Finn is is the freedom to do the right thing in the yes. face of tyranny. Well put. And yeah. that's the difference. And that's why 
Tom Sawyer's looked at the way he is. That's why Huck Finn's looked at the way he is. Um, it's a uniquely American concept, I think. Yeah. yeah. So I don't want to end this episode without reading these, the all-important paragraph. So can I read it? You may. Please. Okay. Um, so it's long, so I'm going to skip some parts. Um, so he, he basically is feeling so guilty for being complicit in Jim's escape that he writes on a piece of paper um, to Miss Watson hmm. that he's with Jim and where he is and, um, you know, and so this moment picks up right after he writes down the note. I felt good and all washed clean of sin for the first time I had ever felt so in my life, and I knowed I could pray now, but I didn't do it straight off, but laid the paper down and sat there thinking, thinking how good it was all this happened so, and how near I come to being lost and going to hell, and went on thinking, and got to thinking over our trip down the river, and I see Jim before me all the time, in the day, and in the nighttime, sometimes moonlight, sometimes storms. And we are floating along, talking and singing and laughing. But somehow I couldn't seem to strike no places to harden me against him. That's so good. But only the other kind. I'd see him standing my watch on top of his, instead of calling me so I could go on sleeping. And see him how glad he was when I come back out of the fog. And when I come to him again in the swamp, up there where the feud was. And such like times, and would always call me honey. And pet me and do everything he could think of for me. And how good he always was. And at last I struck the time I saved him by telling the men we had smallpox aboard. And he was so grateful. And said I was the best friend old Jim ever had in the world. And the only one he's got now. And then I happened to look around and see that paper. That's one sentence, guys. It was a close place. I took it up and held it in my hand. I was a trembling because I'd got to decide forever betwixt two things. And I knowed it. I studied a minute, sort of holding my breath, and then says to myself, all right then, I'll go to hell, and tore it up. Mm. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Stuff right there. I mean, come on. That's really good. That guy should have his own house. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> he should. He should have, like, a bunch of them, and they should all argue about where he wrote the most parts of Huck Finn at, because that's what happens. You know what's weird, <laughs> Juliet, is that you look at, you read that paragraph out loud, and it's, it's an amazing piece of American literature. And because of that paragraph, because of those sentences that he wrote um, in 1888 or whenever it was, 1885, because of that, you have a job where you get to teach young people how to write. It's amazing. You know? Yeah. Like that's literally, those words create this house and your life where you get to pass on literature to young people in Hartford, Connecticut. Well, that's amazing for me. But I will say, even more importantly, is that, you know, and this is combined with Harry Peter Stowe, you know, those books coming out at a time where they were changing Americans' minds about who was human and who was not. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's a goddamn achievement. Yeah, it really is. (laughs) That's a force. It really is. A lot more important than me having a job, but... But I'm just just thinking about sort of the the tendrils of literature that, you know, he was alone in some room typing... And he came up with those words, and now, 140 years later, or however long it's been, um, you get to teach kids about what it meant and, and how to write and to to do it. You know, I mean, all literature stands on the shoulders of other literature, and you are the direct lineage of Mark Twain. I would go so far to say you might be the human embodiment of Mark Twain. Julia not Twain. Val Kilmer, I... not that other guy. Yeah. It's... Definitely not Val Kilmer. Kilmer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
Who is no, her? Who is the new like Mark Twain right now? Hal Holbrook. Hal Holbrook well, is Hal still Holbrook doing is it. Is no. still alive. Yeah, he's still doing it, Jesus. and he's almost ninety. And fun. Here's a super fun fact. Um, Hal Holbrook started being Mark Twain when he was young, and he had to age up, and now he has to age down. But the really fun fact is he's been playing Mark Twain longer than Mark Twain play, yeah, played Mark Twain. That's crazy. Incredible. That is incredible. Um, and how many, no, how many, does he, what does he do? Does he memorize, like, Mark Twain's oh my stories? God. And then he's do a crazy. one-man show in character? I've never seen him, but I'm going to soon, I think. Um, he basically knows... He knows so much. He has so much material memorized, and this will surprise no one. But Mark Twain is a huge letter writer, so mm-hmm. the amount of material available is just insane. Um, no, anyone who claims to have read the complete works of Mark Twain, you know, like I dare you to say that because there's just so much. I so anyway, <laughs> Hal Holbrook um, has so much material that he will arrange his show differently based on current events or whatever. Oh, he wow. just can. He just has so much memorized that he, you know, it's a part of his life. Could I become the new life. Mark Twain? Do I look anything like him? No. You yeah. do. I mean, not If I grow just a exact- mustache. And- well, I he was a redhead. I see you oh. serve as the new Michael Landon. Thanks. <laughs> oh, wow. That was low. <laughs> Michael Landon's a goddamn American hero. <laughs> There was Little House on the Prairie. There Wasn't was that highway to heaven. Wasn't he a domestic abuser? Am I making was that he? up? Oh, if he was, then Ryder's I think not there's dead. something dark in Michael and Landon's no. past. He was like a saint, literally on that one TV show, wasn't he? Yeah, the <laughs> Highway to Heaven show. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I, no, I heard nothing but good things about him. Okay, like, he was one well, of those actors who apparently was so good. like everybody that ever worked on one of his shows or movies loved him to death, and like he was a real it was a real loss when he died. That's wait, wow. they called him the well, anti Burt Reynolds, right? Yeah. Wow, I don't know where I got that terrible. Burt Reynolds moment. just went through a grumpy period. I've heard called life. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I worked with him well, on Evening Shade, which was his grumpy oh, period. Oh really? Oh wow, <laughs> it was horrible. It was horrible. I was like eleven. I was scared. Well, it looks like we're back to our usual shenanigans. So, <laughs> well, probably a good time. Burt to Reynolds stop would have been. I mean, looks episode. wise, he probably could have been a good Mark Twain. Yeah. Well, uh, um, someone somewhere out there, maybe you're the next Mark Twain. Yeah, good luck to you. It's a good goal. <laughs> hey, that could be my field. goal. I could become the next, like you know, Val Kilmer. Come on, I could do better than Val Kilmer, couldn't I? No. Oh yeah. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, you can. Yeah, without a doubt. You can. Uh, Val Kilmer's son be a great actor, though. Yeah. yeah, he's not anymore. Well, um, it's a tough field. It's competitive. Uh, there's a lot of impersonators <laughs> out there. Uh, so good luck to you, Ryder. You Thanks. have my vote of support. Thanks. And that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we have a very special episode in which Julia will offer her report from the Charles W. Morgan. Ahoy. Literary Disco is produced, edited, and saved every week by Tucker Ives. Thank you, Tucker. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and thanks for listening. <laughs>